Um, for those of you who are regular attenders at Fullness, you may be looking at the uh, sermon notes this morning and going through withdrawal because there's no points, no blanks, no of the usual uh, sermon outline. I, I, I know. <laughs> what? Um, I want to walk through a passage with you this morning from the book of Kings, 1 Kings 17. So I would really encourage you just to get your Bibles out. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17, and I want to walk through a a story that's remarkable and familiar to some, and at the same time, look at it from a slightly different angle. Today, we've been, or the last several weeks, we've been talking about balance, maintaining balance in our lives. Too often in our faith and in our lives, we get out of balance. And we want to remain in balance. We want to receive fully all that God has for us. It is not an either-or proposition. It's a both-and kind of deal. The illustration I used uh, when we started is that uh, Kathy and I, a couple of weeks ago, really about a month ago now, went to hear the symphony play. And as we were talking about the various string sections of the orchestra, uh, it came to my mind again how the string instruments, because we were talking about You know, they always start the orchestra off by that famous song, Tuning. Uh, Like one guy gets up and plays and everybody else makes this noise and they all tune together because the first violinist, the principal violinist, stands up and plays a note and then all the other strings tune to that note. What, What makes the string in tune is the tension between two opposing points. Uh, There's the pegs that the string is brought tightly between And when the tension is just right, the string is in tune. But many times in our lives, we get out of balance because we give way to one of the competing tensions in our life. And as a result, we we get out of tune. One string instrument out of tune can wreck the sound of the whole orchestra. For us as well, we need to be in tune with God's word, God's presence, God's people. We need to maintain checks and balances in our lives so that we can stay firm in the Lord. The term balance is not a bad word. Um, I'm sorry, I don't have control again. Um, I don't know why God's trying to teach me something. A balance means to keep or put something in a steady position so that it does not fall. If you're out of balance, you can easily, easily tip over, but... To stay in balance in the Lord's will is not a compromise. It's maintaining his word and his power and his presence and his people all in our lives so that we can stay in balance. One of the things, and having said that, I want to talk to us this morning a little bit about tipping the balance in a certain direction. Because for many of us, we're tipped in one way when we should be tipped in another. And so when I talk about tipping the balance, it really... I mean to bring us back into alignment with the Lord. Many of us, we operate out of a me mindset. Whether we want to or not, that's just the way we're wired. That's the way sin operates in our lives. It talks to us about what is best for me, what is important for me, how can I get me furthered down the road, all of life for many of us, we view through a me perspective. 
It's as if here I am and here is the universe circling around the wonderful me. And everything about this is for me. All of what uh, is going on is for me. The problem with the me mentality is if, if me is not being met, then we are unhappy, we're dissatisfied, we change um, circumstances, we might change churches, we might change spouses, we might change jobs, we might change children if we could. Uh, there's many things about this me mentality that are very, no, I know no one here would change your children out, um, that are very destructive for the way we live life. Jesus came, and the number one message that Jesus came to proclaim is the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom is here. And his, his push for us was to move from a me mentality to a kingdom mentality. For those who are his followers to understand this is about God's kingdom and not, and not about ours. In 1 Kings, we see a story and we see a man that God wants to use. He is probably considered the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. Uh, there might be some debate, but he appears on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus in the New Testament. You've got to figure that ranks right up there. I mean, so, but before God can use this man, he has to do some work in his life to get him from being me-centered to being kingdom-centered. And this remarkable story happens, whereas if you look at it, 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 it appears to be on one level, but then I think there is a deeper meaning to it and a deeper level to what's taking place. This is taking place some 900 years before Jesus is ever born. I, Israel, if you'll remember, and I'll try not to get too caught up in teaching, but uh, if you remember the nation, the 12 tribes that went into possess the land after a period of time after uh, David and Solomon, then the kingdom divided. There were 10 tribes to the north that formed the nation of Israel, and they had a series of various rulers. None of them were related. Uh, it was like um, king of the mountain. Whoever took the king, mountain, he was now the king. And then in the south, he had two tribes, which is Judah, which is where the descendants of David ruled. And so David's descendants ruled in Judah for the remainder of the uh, history of the nation of Judah. But in Israel, he had all these various kings. And you'd have some that were not as bad as others. You really had very few good kings in the northern part of, uh, I'll put my hands down now, uh, in the northern part of Israel, but you had some that were worse than others. One of the ones who is the most wicked is King Ahab. King Ahab comes on the scene. He, through might and power, um, presses himself into being king. Now, the nation itself of Israel, under King Ahab's rule, entered a time of peace and prosperity. Things economically were going well. They had made a peace with the Phoenicians who kind of ruled the coast at the time and were the, considered the preeminent traders and the economic power in the Mediterranean. Things were going really, really well as far as economics were concerned. Now, before you, uh, and the people seem to be fairly happy at this time, but before you jump on board to uh, re-elect King Ahab, um, 
there's a deeper truth that goes on at the same time. In 1 Kings 16, um, Matthew, you're going to have to hang with me, I'm sorry. Uh, in, the, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, this is the phrase you kind of want to look at, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. So, things are going well economically, but from a moral standpoint, Ahab is more evil. His, his description is that he did more evil than any of the other kings before him. He not only, it goes on to say, considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Naboth, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the uh, Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. Not only was he doing evil, but he marries outside. He goes outside and he goes and finds a king of Sidon's daughter, a woman by the name of Jezebel, that he marries. Now, um, Jezebel, as those of you who've read the Old Testament and some of the New know, that uh, she is one of the most wicked queens that ever came to power. She was a worshiper of Baal. I mean, if you looked at her dad's name, his name was um, Eth Baal. So, I mean, even in her father's name, he had the Baal title. Um, as a matter of fact, <laughs> Jezebel gets a, gets a demonic spirit named after her. Uh, you have the spirit of Jezebel. So I'm thinking if you get a demonic spirit named after you that you're not on uh, any, any godly charts. And so she is uh, a wicked, wicked queen. And her, her desire is to bring in the worship of Baal and drive out the worship of God. Now, Baal, the worship of Baal was, um, I'll try not to get too graphic in this description, but it was really a fertility religion. In other words, it, it was because the Canaanites, the uh, Sidonians, were a crop-growing people, it was very important to get rain and to have the crops come up and uh, produce fruit. And so Baal was a worship where they sacrificed to Baal and they would uh, be involved in all sorts of sexual immorality orgies as kind of a, their thought was, if, if we reproduce physically, then maybe the crops will reproduce and be more fruitful. Now, you can see how this could have a real appeal to people. Hey, come to, to our church uh, orgy this Thursday night. Uh, we're going to worship together. So it was very popular among the people. The problem was it violated all the principles that God, that God was having. And, and it was drawing the hearts of the people to Baal and away from the worship of God. It turns out Ahab is a, is a prosperous king, but he's also a very wicked wimp. Uh, Jezebel comes in, and she really takes over. She is really not only the power behind the throne, she becomes the throne itself. So what Jezebel says goes. Also, what was very popular among the people was very destructive, and God hated it. The biggest obstacle for Jezebel and Ahab were God's prophets who were around at that time. 
And so they would speak the word of the Lord and try and get the people back on the right path. But Jezebel and Ahab kept driving the people toward worship of, worship of Baal. So in 1 Kings 16, verse 33, it says, Ahab also made an Asherah pole. Asherah was Baal's consort. Um, That was his woman. Um, So Baal and Asherah go together. So Asherah, uh, there's a uh, place of worship. And it goes on, it says, And did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. God's people in the north, those ten tribes, were living now, though economically prosperous, and, and by the way, this could be a word to us at times. In the, um, what, what, what is it all about? It's about the economy, stupid. I mean, that's really, for us in America, we think economically. We think if the economy is good, then life is good, and we are good, and we are happy, fat, and proud. And as a result, as a result we can get off track in thinking that because we're comfortable, that God is pleased with us. And by the way, again, I don't want to get too far off track, but this is where the prosperity doctrine to me is a lie from the pit of hell. Because it makes you think that if I'm prosperous, God must be pleased with me. Prosperity and God's pleasure don't necessarily go hand in hand. And into this scene comes one of the greatest, if not the greatest prophets of the Old Testament, a man by the name of Elijah, whose name itself means the Lord is Yahweh. The Lord is God. So you can imagine you've got Ahab and Jezebel over here uh, trying to push people to worship Baal. And into this scene comes this prophet by the name of Elijah, whose very name itself means, hey, our Lord is is really God. Our Lord is God. Uh, Jezebel and Ahab, by the way, they start a campaign to try and wipe out the prophets of the Lord that's going to come because they stand in the way. But the first thing we see of Elijah is seen in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, which says, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Wow, this is a pretty big introduction to the king, don't you think? Steps before the king, says, hey, as sure as the Lord is God, the one that I serve, it's not going to rain. Not only is it not going to rain, there's going to be no dew on the ground until I say so again. Now listen, if you're going to deliver this word, you better be right. And you better be sure that you've heard from the Lord. Because next week when it rains, if you haven't, you can't come back and say, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I said it was going to rain. I mean, he said, until, you, until I say it's going to rain, it's not going to rain. And not only that, it's going to be miraculously dry. There's not even going to be any dew on the earth. Now, what God is doing through Elijah at this point is he's striking at the heart of Baal worship. You know, if there's no rain, right, there's no crops, there's no fruit, there's no... He's from the day one saying, listen, I can prove to you that our God is God and this God that you worship, Baal, is not. Elijah was very bold, 
very declarative, very in and of God. God is already using Elijah because of his obedience and his boldness. But if God is really going to use Elijah the way he wants to use him in the days ahead, he's got to move Elijah from being self-protective, which, by the way, is a continuing issue for Elijah all the way up to his end of his ministry, to being self-giving. And I think the story that we see next help moves the balance, tips the balance from Elijah being me and God mentality to being me, God, and his kingdom minded. And I believe it's a move that we all have to make, and we all have to make it as God directs. Here's the story, verses 2 through 6. First uh, Kings 17, verses 2 through 6. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, Turn eastward and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You'll drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. Going on, he says, So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Here's the picture. Elijah declares this word, No rain, no dew. Then he probably starts thinking, hey, wait a minute. What am I going to do? How am I going to survive? I mean, there's no rain, no dew, no crops, no food, no anything. How am I going to make it? So he gets a word from the Lord to go to this ravine. It's kind of a hidden place. And Elijah's got it good. I mean, the water's flowing. He's getting home deliveries. Of food every morning, the ravens bring him food, you know, beak to home kind of mailing. He's getting the food he needs. I mean, he's doing great. I mean, heck with everybody else. I'm I'm doing well. This is doing good for me to serve God, to deliver His word, and He takes care of him. The problem with this setup is that it can contribute to this me mindset, and the problem with the me mindset is that it. It will cause compassion in our hearts to atrophy over time because our focus is solely on our self. Others can become threats to our well-being, our livelihood, our resources. If we start thinking out-minded rather than me-minded, wow, I may have to lose some stuff here. Sometimes the more we have, You would think the more generous we would be, but in fact, sometimes the more we have, the more me-conscious we actually become because we have more to protect because we have now more to lose. Giving and compassion in a me mindset many times become an option rather than God's directive in our lives. So God does a really interesting thing at this point to tip the balance He's let Elijah get refreshed, but he's going to have to move him forward. Verse 7 of 1 Kings 17 says, Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. The brook dries up. Now Elijah's got a problem. I got no water. And can you imagine Elijah? He's sitting in in the ravine saying, this is good. I got the water, I got the birds bringing me food. Then the water stops and he's like, what the hey? Where's my water? 
things have been really good. Where's the food? I, probably what happened at the same time is the ravens quit bringing him food. So now Elijah is going to have to move in order to survive. So where's he going to go? He can't go back to Israel because they are really mad at him. I mean, you know, it's not just the king and queen. There's no rain. There's no dew. Everybody's suffering. And the fault they see lies with Elijah, which is, again, a, this is a whole new, different sermon that many times we think the fault of what's going on in our lives lies with somebody else rather than us. We're very me-oriented until we get into problems. And then we become very you-oriented. You're the problem. You're the the issue here, anything but me. Anyway, verses 8 and 9, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon. Does that name ring a bell? That's where Jezebel is from. God says to to Elijah, Go to the enemy's territory and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So now he can't go back to Israel. He's got to go to Sidon, the very place that Jezebel is from. He's got to go into the enemy's camp and get food and survive. Does this not remind you of Psalm 23? He prepares a table before me. Where? In the presence of mine enemies. Why? Because to do that, you know this is of God and not of me. If I can go there and get fed and survive... Something is happening that's God-oriented. So he sends him. He's literally a stranger in a strange land. Suddenly forced to suffer under the effects of the word that God caused him, called him to deliver. And this is another truth. There's so many in this story, but many times when you're a part of a group you're, and God is doing something in that group, the effects happen to everybody. But God has a plan. He's told Elijah, he tells Elijah, go and look for a widow there, and she's going to provide for you. So here's the proud prophet of God who knows he has the word of the Lord going to the enemy, looking for a widow so that she can feed him, so that he can survive. Step by step, I think God is breaking down the me mentality of Elijah to humble him and to really get him to have a heart of compassion, not just a heart of judgment, not just a heart of boldly delivering the word of God at any consequence without thoughts of people. Verses 10 through 12. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He calls to her and asks, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink. And as she was going to get it, he called, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. So you get the picture. The widow is there. He finds her. Oh, there she is, gathering sticks. Must be the one. Hey, would you bring me a drink of water? And how about a piece of bread? Look at her response. Next couple of verses. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. 
Elijah finds the widow, asks her for water, asks her for uh, um, some bread as she heads out to get the water. But she basically responds to him and says, bread, I don't have any, I don't have any bread. Matter of fact, I'm gathering these few sticks I can find so I can make a fire. My son and I, we're going to finish the bread and the oil, the flour. I'm going to make a little bread and then we're going to die. Not exactly what Elijah was looking for. Not exactly God's provision, is it? Listen, and when things, the widow is not asking for pity or, she's just stating a fact. You know, when there's famine in the land, when things are going bad, who are the ones that get hit the hardest and, the, and first? The ones without are the ones who get, I mean, they, don't, they have no margin. So this widow is an example, and a widow in this land, especially a widow with a son, is not going to be seen as someone uh, who mercy is on. Besides, she's got, she must have some stuff in her life. We'll see in a little way, way she's got some, she had something going on in the past because of the way she talks about her past. Her statement to Elijah, if there's anyone, by the way, who has the right to be me-centered at this point, is it not her? I mean, is it not her? She's got nothing but a little bread and a little oil. What have I got? I, it's not going to be enough to feed me and my son. We're just going to die. Verses 13 and 14. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. Can you imagine her response to this? Really? Really, you want me to go home, make a bread, a cake of bread, and give it to you first, and then make some bread for us, and you're telling me that this God, your God, who I don't even serve, is going to keep things flowing if I do this, as long as you're with us? At some point, I, I don't know what the deal was with the widow at this point. I don't know. It could have been that she's so desperate that she says, what the heck? What have I got to lose if I do this? Or maybe she has some heart of compassion for this man. She senses that he's a man of God, and she, of all people, has some sort of compassion on him. Or maybe God instills in her some level of faith to say, go with this. Whatever the case is, she does what Elijah says. Verses 15 and 16, she went away, did as Elijah told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family, for the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Holy cow, this is unbelievable. We were starving, now the bread, the flour and the oil are never running dry. She's fed. Her son is fed. Elijah is fed. Her household does not starve. Once again, Elijah is sitting pretty. 
Once again, from where he went, God is not only providing, but providing miraculously and providing above what he could even need. Now, he's also providing for this family, and especially this widow who had enough faith to step out and say, I'll give you the last of what I have. Here's where the story turns. Here's the key to the story to me as well about what God does in Elijah, verses 17 and 18. Because listen, by the way, everything Elijah's done so far is just in obedience to the word of the Lord. And as he does, God is continuing to provide. God's continuing to work. Sometime later, the son of the woman, we don't know how long this went on. It it was a good period of time. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. By the way, finally stop breathing is a euphemism for dead. It means he's dead. The boy died. She says to Elijah, what do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? This whole story suddenly takes this twist when her son gets sick and then dies. Now, she, could, she knows Elijah's a man of God. I mean, get the whole oil and flour thing, right? She knows he's a man of God, but suddenly she feels condemned. Suddenly she feels like, my son's sickness and death, are, are you here to condemn me for what I did in the past? Is that not the, our first response, by the way? Things happen in our lives, and we start thinking, what did I do wrong? Why, what's God doing here? Why did God, why is God punishing me? We had this incident in our house recently where my car decided to hit another car. And, you know, our first response at times was, okay, what did we do wrong? Do we not pray enough? Do we not cover the car enough? Do we not do this enough? Do we not do that? You know, at some point you just got to say, I don't think this is an issue of that. I won't tell you what the issues were, but there are other issues, other issues involved. God's doing something bigger here than goes beyond her fault and her sin. She thinks she's being punished, but I actually believe God's doing something to break Elijah to move in Elijah's life, and is using this circumstance to really work on his heart. 1 Kings 17, verses 19 through 21. Look what Elijah does. He says, give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, Have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times, cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. When Elijah takes the boy and lays him out on his own bed and cries to the Lord, you think he's praying, but the way this is worded in Hebrew, this is actually a lament. This is like, what is going on? Why, God, did you, are you taking the life of this boy, of the woman who showed me a level of mercy and took me into her home and has fed me? What, why are you doing this? 
When Elijah's delivered the words before, he's heard from God and he's done what God has said. And it's taken him every step. And now this circumstance happens and Elijah cries out before God. It's as if he's broken. And he's saying, God, why? I don't understand your ways. Then he does an unusual thing. He, he literally lays himself over the boy. He lies on top of him, almost as if he's hoping that the life from himself will touch the boy's life and bring him back to life. And he cries out to God, Lord God, bring this boy back to life. Now, something powerful is going to happen, but I'm not sure this story is about power as much as it is about brokenness about the brokenness that causes Elijah to to move from this bold, thundering, confident prophet of God to being laying out on a boy who's died saying, God, why? Please bring this boy back to life. Look at verses 22 through 24, and then I'm going to try and tie it together. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. There's funny parts to this story, interesting parts, and I think truthful parts as well. God hears Elijah's cry, and we have the first recorded instance in all of the Bible of someone being raised from death to life. This is the first of several resurrections in the Bible, but this is the very first one. And anytime there's a first one, I believe something important is being communicated. The widow's son lives. Here's what I think is really funny. Now the woman believes. As if the unceasing flour and oil were not enough. Now, I guess you thought maybe this was some sort of trick. Some sort of deal where the flour never runs out, the oil never runs out. But now that her son is raised back to life, now she really believes. But I really believe the point of the story is about what God has done in Elijah in this. Do you know what you don't see when the boy was sick and getting sicker? You don't see, and I don't know that it didn't happen, but I may be reading into it, but you don't see Elijah praying for the boy when he was sick and getting sicker. Maybe he just thought, hey, my my mere presence here will protect this house, and they won't get sick, and he'll turn the corner and be fine. Maybe he did pray for him, and we we don't know. But what we we don't see this attitude of brokenness in Elijah before. But when the boy dies, when the point of no return, as death most of the time is, happens, suddenly God does something in Elijah's heart where he's now just broken and crying out to God for this one boy. You know, there are probably people in the nation of Israel who are dying by this point. I mean, the rain has not happened. The dew hasn't come. It's going to be three years before it rains again. The people are going to suffer greatly. 
probably other people are going to die as a result of this word that Elijah's delivered. But I think there's something that happens here. You know, there's, this, there's something about reading on the news that so-and-so was in a car wreck versus when it happens to your daughter. Suddenly, it goes from, eh, happens all the time, to, oh, my lands. Compassion flows from us when it's related to someone we know. God takes Elijah from the courts of the king to being fed by the ravens to a widow's household where something happens in his heart. So when this boy dies, his compassion, God tips the balance, I think, in Elijah's life from being me-centered to thinking about others, to having a heart for the hurting. I would contend that for many of us, it is easy to let the, the string be tuned and the tension be tightened to being concerned about ourselves. My present, my past, my future, my money, my, my name, my recognition, it's all about me. And if, 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 if my world happens to come across somebody else's world that I can, you know, they can get the crumbs of me, then that's okay. Rather than being tuned toward a heart of compassion and love and kindness and gentleness to others. Colossians 3.2 speaks of our relationship with God, and it says about this, therefore, as God's chosen people, that's us, holy and dearly loved, that's us too, what are we supposed to do? Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. God makes these statements about who we are, we're his chosen people, we're holy and dearly loved. So as a result, here's what we're to do. Clothe yourself every day. Put on a cloak of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Because if you don't, you're going to be tipped toward being me-centered rather than having a heart of compassion and being kingdom-minded. I pray that the prayer that we have for our heart will be a balance that's tipped towards having a heart of compassion. A prayer that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, though he probably didn't, isn't the one who wrote it, uh, but it's attributed to him. Famous prayer says this, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is discord, harmony. Where there is error, truth. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light, and where there is sadness, joy. Oh, divine master, grant that I may not, this is the part I want you to see, that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love, for it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life.
Lord, I pray this morning that you would establish in us a heart of compassion. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us where we have in the past been more me-centered than kingdom-directed. I pray, God, that we would understand that this is not all about us. This is about you and your work in our lives. And I pray, God, you would do your work. I pray that you would lead us, guide us, direct us. I pray that the truth that it is in giving that we receive would be really nailed home for each of us today. Lord, we thank you and bless you and rejoice in you. In Jesus' name. Stand up with me if you would. I'm going to ask our ministry teams to come and spread out across the front. If you're here today and you uh, have any need that you feel like God uh, would direct you to receive prayer for, maybe you're here today and you are not Uh, physically well, you would like someone to pray for you uh, for healing and health. Maybe you're looking for God's direction in your life and you would like to receive prayer for that. Maybe something in the word today has really sparked in you and you would say, you know what? I I know that I'm just way too me-centered and I want to be more directed by God. You can either pray while you're standing there or you can come and let someone pray with you. Um, that's what this time is is for. So just come to one of these teams that's spread out across the front. If they fill up, we'll get other teams. There's a couple in the back as well. And let's just pray for one another right now.